Luke's Gospel, chapter 15, if you would turn there in your Bibles this morning. If you're visiting with us today, we are so glad that you're here. I hope you'll take a moment uh, to uh, pick up one of our guest cards in the seat pocket in front of you. You can also grab one at our information desk in the church lobby before you leave. And uh, take a few minutes to fill that out. Let us know how you heard about our church and how you enjoyed your visit. We have a gift that we'd like to give you today. If you wouldn't mind dropping that card off at the information desk before you leave. We're just so delighted that you've come and thank you for being here with us. And we pray that you feel both welcomed and inspired by our exalting of the gospel today. I'll be here at the front at the end of the service if I can answer any questions that you may have or pray with you. Uh, I would love to meet you personally as well. We are studying together as a church the Gospel of Luke, which is the third of the Gospels in the New Testament, and this morning we have come to the 15th chapter. Let's look together at the first 10 verses. The Bible says, now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Well, here in Luke chapter 15, uh, Jesus shares three different parables. I think it's important to remind ourselves about what a parable is. A parable is a short story with a gospel meaning. Sometimes a parable is told in isolation, while at other times they're linked together with a common theme or a common emphasis. Well, the three parables here in Luke chapter 15 are one of those occasions in which all three are linked together. We have first the parable of the lost sheep. We have secondly the parable of the lost coin. And we have thirdly the parable of the lost Son. The first two parables are short and they serve as a succinct summary of the theme that Jesus is emphasizing here. While the third parable, beginning at verse 11, is more detailed, it's, it's more developed, if you will. 
Uh, Think about it this way. The the first two parables provide the backdrop for what Jesus is going to unfold fully in that third and longer of the three parables. But the common theme in each of these three that are linked together is this. God receiving and rejoicing over repentant sinners. That's the thing. You see it in the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then when we come again, the lost son. The common theme in all three of them is that God receives sinners and God rejoices over repentant sinners. The chapter here in Luke has been called the heart of Luke's gospel. For perhaps no other parable show us more clearly the heart of the Lord Jesus himself. Today what we're going to do is look at the first two parables which will set up our ability to give the third parable the full attention I believe it deserves. So you'll have to bear with me as we look at parable one and parable two and then you're going to have to come back in two weeks for parable three. So as we study these first two parables, I I want that theme that Jesus is emphasizing to be branded on your heart. I want it to be branded in your mind that Jesus is the God who receives sinners. If you like to write things there in your Bible, perhaps you would write that over top of Luke chapter 15 or there in your notes as you're jotting down some of the things that we're talking about this morning. Jesus Jesus is the God who receives sinners. He welcomes sinners. He embraces sinners. He is of his own testimony a friend to sinners. Now we see very quickly here in verse 1 and 2 the context behind Jesus sharing these parables. Look at it there with me in verse 1. Tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. They grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, in this tax season, some of you may be uh, uh, a little alert here to the fact that tax collectors are involved in this phrase. I think it's important to uh, uh, clarify for you a little bit of cultural context that uh, when when religious religious leaders uh, mention tax collectors by name, they they often did so in reference to the overall scandalous behavior of sinners, because tax collectors were universally hated especially due to their alignment with the Roman government and their corrupt corrupt ways of deceit and dishonesty, which called the Jewish people to live in ongoing oppression. So this is not necessarily the same in our day as being an employee of H&R Block. It's important you understand that. Think Think about it like this. Whatever group of sinners and their agenda-driven immorality are the most notorious to you in terms of our current culture, whatever that is, whoever that is, 
That is exactly how the tax collectors were viewed. In the minds of the Jews, they were the worst of the worst, and so they often lumped in tax collectors by name when they were describing the most scandalous sinners of the day. And one of the things that I noticed here in reading this is how these tax collectors and scandalous sinners were attracted to Jesus. Did you notice here that it said they all drew near to hear him? That is, they desired to be around Jesus. They wanted to be around Jesus. Not because he was like them in the sense of their sinful nature. No, but because he embraced them. You see, the religious leaders of the day had cast to the side these scandalous sinners. But Jesus had not cast them to the side. In fact, Jesus cared for them. And that's why they came to hear him speak. Jesus' message was different. In fact, it was much different from the message of the Pharisees. Jesus' disposition was different. In fact, it was much different from the disposition of the Pharisees. Every religious leader these scandalous sinners had known kept them at an arm's distance, but not Jesus. Jesus got close to them. Jesus wanted them to get close to him. They were attracted to Jesus. When I read this, I'm faced with a very important question in my own life. Do the scandalous sinners of our community find us, who are Jesus' followers, to be friendly, welcoming, and caring toward them? Do, do the scandalous sinners who are your next door neighbors, do the scandalous sinners whom you work with, do the scandalous sinners in your own family, do they find you to be welcoming, friendly, embracing of who they are because of your care for their soul? Are they attracted to you? course, when the Pharisees and scribes witnessed Jesus having meals with these scandalous sinners of the day, they, of course, grumbled at him. I like that word grumbled. Maybe it's because I'm getting older. I did, I did a little uh, uh, dive uh, into this to find out what tense it was actually in in the original language. And I, I discovered that it's in the imperfect tense, which means they didn't just grumble once. They continued to grumble at him. They were always grumbling at him. They, they couldn't let this thing go. I mean, if they were on social media, they're still talking about it even though it was a month ago. They can't let it die. They can't let it go. They're always grumbling at the fact that sinners want to be around Jesus and Jesus wants sinners to be around him. 
And I think the first cause of their grumbling is because they didn't view themselves as scandalous sinners needing divine grace. They were proud individuals, righteous, spiritually superior to sinners. They didn't have time for them. In fact, they were too afraid that they would tarnish their righteous reputation if they would be found anywhere near them. I'm not going to eat with them. They're not coming to my house for coffee. No, no, no. If people see me going to their wedding, then they are sure enough going to ostracize me because they thought themselves to be so much better, so much better than the sinners around them. I think they also grumbled at him because they wanted the Messiah to be like them. And Jesus was nothing like them. Uh, For example, uh, Jesus was a teacher. We see him often called a rabbi. He was a teacher, a rabbi. What were the Pharisees and scribes? They were also teachers and rabbis. I think it's interesting that one of the most grumbling groups of people on the face of the earth are pastors and teachers who constantly grumble toward one another. Just take my word for it. I live in that world. That's no different then as it is today. As soon as a colleague in your field of teaching and preaching and pastoring crosses a line that maybe you wouldn't cross or does something different that you wouldn't did or or do or, or perhaps even violate the rules and supposed ethics of ministry, we cut them off. Because they don't do it the way that we do it. And they don't minister the way that we minister. And they don't see it the way that we see it. And I think this is part and parcel of the problem. They didn't want Jesus to be different from them. They wanted Jesus to be like them. For example, one of the many standards that the Pharisees had established for teachers was that they were never allowed to have dinner with sinners. That was one of the rules. If you wanted to be a good rabbi, if you had dinner with a sinner... The religious leaders chalked it up to mean that you affirmed and celebrated their sin. So, when they saw Jesus violating their rules, their standards, they would not stop grumbling about him. Because Jesus wasn't like them. I think you understand this thinking still exists today, doesn't it? Most people want a Jesus who is like them, who looks like them, talks like them, thinks like them. You may even this morning find the Jesus of Luke 15 to be a crossing the line Jesus. You're not comfortable having dinner with scandalous sinners in our community, so in your mind, Jesus shouldn't be comfortable with it either. That's the heart of the problem. It was the heart of their problem. It's the heart of our problem when we view things this way. We want a Jesus who abides by our views, is committed to our ideas, who upholds our standards. Oh, and let's not forget that we also want a Jesus who votes like we do in this political season. We want a Jesus just like us. And you see, that's the real scandal. 
real scandal is not eating with sinners. The real scandal is making Jesus a God after our image and likeness. That's the real scandal. And in the context of these religious leaders, what's even more scandalous is that they're failing to fulfill their true mission as teachers and shepherds. You do a quick study of the Old Testament and you'll find out that this is one of God's greatest indictments against Israel and their legalistic teachers. They weren't compassionate. They didn't go after the wounded and hurting. They didn't provide help to scandalous sinners. They failed in their responsibility as shepherds. Ezekiel chapter 34 is a good chapter to study this. Let me read a couple of verses from Ezekiel 34. God is saying to these malpracticed shepherds, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you've ruled over them instead. Therefore, God says, I am against you shepherds. Yeah, you, you, you pastors who aren't doing your job, the, the pastors who aren't going after the sinners and helping the lost and empathizing with the hurting, those of you who are putting more burdens and harshness on them, I'm against you because you're not doing your job. But what was God's solution? He says, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. You didn't do it, I'm going to do it. I will rescue them. I will feed them. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. And I will strengthen the weak. That was the promise God made. Every earthly shepherd I gave you, Israel, failed because they made everything about them and not about me. So I'm going to come and do it myself. And by the way, that's the shepherd we all need. Not the imperfect Shepherds, but the perfect shepherd. And that's exactly what God did. You fast forward from Ezekiel to this moment in time. Here's Jesus sitting at dinner. And the first thing that came to my mind was he was probably having barbecue, but that would not be scripturally accurate because Jews didn't eat it. But because of grace, he would have been open to it. So they're sitting together and they're having dinner. They're having dinner and the Pharisees and scribes are saying he's affirming their sin. He's celebrating their sin. No, he's not. He's fulfilling his mission. He's fulfilling his mission. And his mission in Luke 5.32, he said of himself, I came not to call righteous people who don't repent. I came to call sinners who will repent. And that's why I'm eating with them. This is why I came. I'm not affirming it. I'm not celebrating it. I'm doing what I came to do. Save sinners. So in this context, Jesus is responding to their grumbling, not by defending his dinner habits, but by showing them just how backward their view of God was. 
that Jesus, unlike them, is not a God who rejoices in the lostness of sinners. He is a God who rejoices in the repentance of sinners. And how will they repent unless they hear? And how will they hear unless he goes to them? They say, Pastor, that's a lot of information in your introduction. We're going to be here a while, aren't we? Well, maybe. But let's go ahead and jump into this first one as we think about the God who receives sinners. I, I want you to recognize, number one, that he is a seeking God. The God who receives sinners is a seeking God. That is, he searches for and he goes after repentant sinners. Do you understand that this morning? He searches for and goes after repentant sinners. In both parables, we have something that is lost. We have a lost sheep and a lost coin. Both are extremely valuable to the owner. The sheep is of great value to the shepherd. The coin is of great value to the woman. But the parables begin by acknowledging the lostness, the lostness of these two valuables. The sheep is lost. The coin is lost. And again, what is a parable? A parable is a short story that has gospel meaning. So right off the bat, what we have here is a picture of the lostness of sinners. Where are the sheep? Where are the coin? We're lost. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to our own way. We're lost. We're lost. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. Here's the worst part. No one is able to seek for God. Not only are we lost, but we're not even looking for him. You see, the condition of the sheep and the coin in these parables is the condition of lost sinners and the reality of life. Lost and unable to find the God who created us. But here's where the parables highlight the grace of God toward lost sinners. Look at verse 4. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country? And notice this, and go after the one that is lost. Oh, mark that in your Bibles, friends. He goes after the one who is lost. He goes after them. Look at verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house, and notice this, seek diligently for it. The shepherd goes after the lost sheep. The woman seeks diligently for the lost coin. So... It is with the God of heaven. He is the God who receives sinners because he is the God who seeks after him. He is a searching God, a seeking God who goes after the scandalous sinner. I want to help you with something that's very theologically important. Listen carefully. We do not find Jesus. Jesus finds us. 
I see sometimes these, these, these markers on church mission statements, helping people find Jesus, newsflash, we don't find him. He finds us. He finds us. Well, Pastor, what do you mean? I found Jesus when I was 35 years old. Friend, you found him because he found you first. The scripture says no one seeks after God. No one finds God. It's not you who's out on the search and rescue mission. It's God who's on the search and rescue mission. He found me. He came to me. He sought after me. That's what he said at least. Luke chapter 19, we'll eventually get there. In verse 10, the Son of Man, Jesus said, came to seek after, to go after and save the lost. It's that wonderful refrain of amazing grace, isn't it? How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. It's not that Jesus was lost and I found him. No, I was lost and he found me was blind, but now I see. You see, it wouldn't be grace if you found Jesus. It's grace because Jesus willingly came and found you. Well, you know what it's like to search for something important to you that you've lost. Seems like in our house, we are constantly on the search for our car keys. I blame Jaden for that, by the way. He loves to play hide-and-seek with valuables. Well, imagine this woman in the parable. She's looking diligently. It's, it says here that, that she lights a lamp. She, in modern terms, gets the flashlight out. If it's me, I get my headlamp on. She grabs the, the broom. She, she's sweeping. She's going into every nook and cranny to find this thing that is so valuable to her. She won't rest until she finds it. She won't stop looking until she finds it. Look at the shepherd. The shepherd's putting himself in precarious situations. He's going through caves. He's venturing down in ravines. He's putting his own life on the line just to find one sheep. Why? Because there is no sacrifice too much. There is no obstacle too big, there is no trouble too hard when it comes to seeking after that which is so valuable to you. And friends, this is God. Do you remember where you were when he found you? Maybe it was in a hard place. Maybe it was in one of those locations no one else would have ever thought to look but God is a seeking God, and he doesn't let up until he finds what belongs to him. So why would he not eat with sinners? Why would he not have them over for coffee? Why would he not teach them first and foremost? That's who he came for. He's on a search and rescue mission. His favorite department is the lost and found. That's because he is a seeking God. He searches for and goes after repentant sinners. Oh, I am so thankful this morning that he found me. 
He's a seeking God. Secondly, he's a saving God. He finds and bears the sins of repentant sinners. He finds and he bears the sins of repentant sinners. Notice that in verse 4, the shepherd goes after the one that is lost until he what? Finds it. The woman in verse 8 searches diligently for the coin until she finds it. Of course, as the shepherd finds and saves the sheep, and as the woman finds and saves the coin, Jesus finds and saves sinners. But I want you to notice specifically how he saves lost sinners. To me, the imagery in the parable of the lost sheep is so powerful. Look at it in verse 5. And when he has found it, He lays it on his shoulders. Well, of course, as we fill in the blanks, what's not mentioned is that the lostness of the sheep means that the sheep has gone through a great deal of wounding. That's all of our condition and lostness, unable to help ourselves. So when Jesus finds us, he doesn't come to us and says, all right, get up, let's go. There's no way the shepherd would have done that for a wounded and broken and nearly dead sheep. No, he goes to that sheep. He binds up his wounds. He picks him up, places him upon his shoulders, and ensures, it ensures that he never loses that sheep again. That's the imagery. He's not only seeking after it. No, no, no. He seeks after it. He finds it. He picks it up, and he carries it. He carries the sheep on his shoulders. He bears upon himself its wounds. He bears upon itself its scars, its brokenness, its helplessness. You see, wherever you were when Jesus found you, he didn't look at you and say, get up, let's go. No, 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 that's what the world will tell you. That's what religion will tell you. That's what good works will tell you. Jesus saw you. Now it's up to you to pull yourself up and dust yourself off and give it your best shot. But that's not what Jesus does. Not to those he finds. No, he seeks after them. He finds them. He picks them up. He carries them. He bears upon himself all of our lostness and brokenness and helplessness. And he carries us back to the fold where we belong, never to be lost again. That's how salvation works. Our seeking God finds us in our lostness and he saves us by bearing our sins upon himself and as our perfect shepherd carries us all the way home to our eternal abode. Psalm 28, the Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. 
Isaiah 46, 4, God says, I have made and I will bear, I will carry and I will save. Of course, how can we not neglect 1 Peter 2? When Peter said he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for it is by his wounds we are healed. You were straying like sheep but now you've been found and returned to the shepherd of your souls. I think it's important that we stop here perhaps and emphasize who it is that Jesus actually searches for and saves. Because scattered throughout these two parables, as we will also see in the third parable, is the saving not of all sinners universally, but of specific sinners. Namely, sinners who repent of their sin. That was the problem with the Pharisees. The problem was not their lostness, but it was their inability to recognize their lostness. It was their inability to want Jesus to save them. You see, the only way a sinner can be saved and received by God is if that sinner repents of his sin and trusts Jesus to save them. It's the sinner who repents in verse 7 and in verse 10 that is saved by Jesus. So friend, if you are a repentant sinner, Jesus is carrying you. What a beautiful image. He's not dragging me. Although you and I often feel like a mess that can just be dragged, drugged, whatever. Correct me later, I'm not sure right now. He doesn't drag us along. He's not kicking us. Come on, let's go. What are you waiting on? Get up. How often do I got to prod you and poke you and get you to move? Come on. He bends down. He picks us up. Places us on his shoulders. And he says, I'll take it from here. I'll take it from here. Don't, don't, don't fight with me. You just... Don't struggle with me. I, I promise if you'll just rest, if you'll just rest, if you'll just trust me, if you'll just stay calm and just sit right here with me, I'll take it from here. That's what happened when you came to Christ, repentant of your sins. He put all of your burdens on his shoulder. Friends, don't be sidetracked by sidetracked by bootstrap religion. You understand what I mean by that? We are saved by Christ alone, sole de Christus, not sole de bootstrapper. <laughs> you got that friend, you got that family member, maybe you've heard it from a pulpit somewhere, come on, dust yourself off, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get going. No, don't do that. You can't even do that. 
We're not saved by bootstrap religion. Neither do we need to be sidetracked by bootstrap religion. We just need to trust the one who said, I've got it from here. I've got it from here. Let me carry you. I've bore upon myself all your sins, all your wounds, all your anguish, all your brokenness. And guess what? I'm never going to lose you again. Just let me take it from here. He's a saving God. He finds us and he bears us upon his shoulders. Why would you ever want to go back to an environment that tells you you got work to do? All right, let me give you one more. He's a seeking God. He's a saving God. He's a singing God. He celebrates and rejoices over repentant sinners. Verse 4, when he found it, the lost sheep, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Rejoicing. Perhaps wherever it was, he puts it on there. He's just, he's running back. Man, I can't believe I got to get back. I got to tell everybody. Oh, no, he's right here. I got him. He's rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying, Rejoice with me. I found my sheep that was lost. Even so, Jesus says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 9, when she found it, she called together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I lost. Jesus said, even so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner, one sinner who repents. Isn't this a phenomenal picture? It's a picture of God rejoicing. He's a God who sings. He's a God who sings. He sings over the repentance of sinners. He's a God who gets excited. He's a God who laughs joyfully. He's a God who celebrates. He's, he's a God who hugs. He's beside himself. He leads all of heaven to rejoice, not over self-righteous religious people who act like they have it all together. He leads all of heaven to rejoice over scandalous sinners who repent of their sins and let Jesus save them. He's a singing God. You know, that's one of the reasons why singing is so integral to our Christian faith. That's why singing is a vibrant fabric in our weekly gatherings here as believers. We sing about him because he sings about us. Have you ever thought about that? While we are gathered here singing about him, he's gathering them there singing about us. Zephaniah 317. I didn't even know that one was in the Bible. It's there. We don't get there much, but listen to this one. Zephaniah 317. The Lord your God is in your midst. He is a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Is 
Now, my husband sings too loud. Well, he's just trying to get up there with God. God is a loud singer. He's a loud singer. And he leads all of heaven. He leads all of heaven to sing over repentant sinners. That's the work of the gospel, isn't it? You see, repentance is the evidence. Joy is the response. We sing because he sings. We sing because he came looking for us. We sing because he found us. We sing because he's carrying us. We sing because we know we will never be lost again. Well, that is. If you're a repentant sinner. A repentant sinner. Have you come to faith in Christ, turning from your sins and trusting in Jesus alone? Is there evidence of repentance in your life? God receives repentant sinners. Any of them. No matter how scandalous they are, even if they're tax collectors, working for the IRS. He saves them if they repent. So perhaps you're sitting here today feeling lost. Your life is marked by scandalous sin. Sadly, every religious person you've ever known has kept you at a distance. Is that how you feel? Even being in this room has got you a little bit on edge because you've never been in a church that, where you felt welcomed or embraced or even received by them. Yet in all of these feelings, somehow, somehow you find yourself here in this place today. But let me tell you, it's not because you found us. It's because he found you. And he wants you to know that if you will repent of your sin and trust Jesus, he will receive you, he will save you, he will pick you up, and he will carry you all the days of your life. Let him take it from here. Let him take it from here. And believer, if Jesus himself experienced sinners who were attracted to him, then what's your problem? What's my problem? Why don't they want to be around you? Why don't they want to be around me? It might be that we have a little bit of religious air about us and not the heart. Do y'all remember when Jared used to work here? That was a long time ago, wasn't it? I brought a song to him one day. I said, I'd really like to sing this song. And I don't know what it was. He just couldn't get it. I asked Austin. I've even asked my wife. There is something wrong with this song. I don't know what it is, but I love the lyrics of it. 
It's called the king of love, my shepherd is. One stanza reads like this. Perverse and foolish, often I stray. And yet in love he sought me. And on his shoulders gently laid. Now home rejoicing brought me. That's our shepherd. That's the one who found you. Let him receive you into his life. Let's stand together for prayer.